It is patient. It, it is a, an emotion. One of the most basic emotions a person can feel. It's powerful, more powerful than evil. It's as when you're as much concerned with someone else as you are with yourself. It's soul food. It's there to cover up the pain. John Lennon said, it's a souvenir once given, never forgotten. Love. Like so many in our world today, that's how they understand love to be. Love may be one of those words that we avoid using because it's seemingly overused, and thus it seems it's lost a little weight, a little heaviness, a little meat. And used too early or too carelessly, love is something that we can become then cynical about. In so many lives, people have been so missed love, they begin to view love in such a wrong way, a hurtful way. Many come to church and think back to the song they learned as a child, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And they leave with a feeling of nothing, really. It doesn't impact them. And they walk back into a world that has totally dismantled, uh, completely destroyed the biblical definition of love. A world that doesn't even know what love looks like. This is why we come together each week and sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word. We come in to recalibrate, to reset of what we know according to what God has revealed to us in his word. That's that's why you come. That's why it's important for you to come. Not to hear from Jeff, but to hear from God. We need God to teach us. We come to John 13, and last week we looked at the first 17 verses. And, and in this chapter, the disciples have been walking with Jesus for three years now. And you come to the last half of the John 13, and, and Jesus is going to identify one of them that is going to betray him. And then he's going to instruct them how to live. This morning, I, my desire is to endeavor to finish John 13, the rest of this chapter. And, and we're in this, we're going to see three things. The choice of Jesus, the betrayal of Jesus, and the love of Jesus. But before we begin, I want to pray again. God, I thank you for this morning. God, I recognize again that I need you, we need you, and I ask as we open your word that you would give insight and understanding, uh, that your words would leap off the page to us and capture our hearts. God, I ask I beg that you would be the teacher here this morning, that people would come away knowing they heard from you and from your word. May it instruct us, may it convict us and change us. May we leave this morning different than when we came in. And may we give you the glory for this. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want you to see as we walk through this is the choice of Jesus. And when we speak of his choosing, we, we're talking about his election. 
You know, the goal of God in election is the elimination of all human pride, all self-reliance, all boasting of man. We should boast, but not in ourselves. We boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, he says. In other words, the goal of election is to take all the boasting off man and focus all of the boasting on God. Humble men exalt Jesus, not themselves. And so we come to John 13, 18, and Jesus says in this first verse, I am not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen. Jesus knows the kind of man that he's chosen. He's been purposeful in his election. And he continues, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus is now quoting Psalm 41.9, which is the Psalm of David. And this is what it reads. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Literally, he has given me a great fall. He has taken a cruel advantage of me. He's, he's walked out on me. And Jesus is preparing the men to receive the blow of Judas's betrayal, not only to God, but to them, to the group. And in verse 19, he comes and gives us understanding why. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I, uh, receive the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And he, he's preparing them for what's about to happen. And in these verses, you see the foreknowledge of God. Was he surprised that Judas would turn on him? No, he wasn't surprised, and he didn't want his disciples to be either. One commentary, Gordon Ketty explains, Jesus knew how much Judas' duplicity would shake the faith of the other 11 disciples. Perhaps they might think that Judas had outwitted Jesus, and they needed to be assured that this was the the outworking of God's plan and that Jesus was fully aware of what was about to transpire. That is why he tells them before it comes. Jesus is, is laying the groundwork for their faith again. And Jesus knows that they will not fully understand what's about to happen in the next 36 hours. Only the resurrection, only the gift of the Holy Spirit will bring understanding. And he's, he's encouraging his men to keep going even though Judas is about to leave them. And we can't ignore the trauma that will take place as Judas one who has walked with these 11 men for the last three, three years will, will get up from the table and will leave. And then the remaining moments that will happen, the hours that happen in the garden, they, do, they don't dis, uh, suspect Judas at this time. If you look down in verse 22, John informs us that they had no clue as to who Jesus was talking about. What about Judas? What, what happened to him? We're not told in scripture how he was called to his disciples. When he came into the scene, he's there. And he's counted by one of the 12, as Jesus says. And it seems throughout the gospels that Judas believed that Jesus was coming to establish his rule. He's coming to establish his kingdom. Judas, I believe this, and for him, that's what he wanted. But that's it. That's what he longed for. I'm sure, my guesstimation, he was one of the ones speaking up in this meal, saying, yeah, I'm one of the greatest. I get that corner office. And we don't know how it plays out in the, in the meal where he's seated, but, but we know where John is. We'll see that. He's on one side. I believe Judas is on the other side. 
They believed he deserved a high place in Jesus' kingdom. But things boiled, down, boiled over for Judas, and we saw in John 12 when Mary kneels to anoint Jesus to show her love and adoration and worship of Jesus. How does Judas respond? What a waste. That money could have been used. Or in his case, I could have taken some of that money for myself. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, following this event, following the event with Mary in John 12 that we went through. And Matthew's Gospel gives us a little more understanding. In chapter 26, verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. He had had enough of wasting this perfume. For him, it was enough. And he, he goes and starts this plan to betray his Lord. But his betrayal wouldn't be hidden for long. Because soon after this, we come to this meal, and he'll be identified as the one who will start this domino effect of Jesus' crucifixion. Which moves to the second point I want to bring up this morning, the betrayal of Jesus. And there's so much here in the second point. From the prophecy of Jesus, his foreknowledge, his sovereignty, to the possession of Judas, to the betrayal of the Christ. But Jesus begins these verses by prophesying Judas' betrayal. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus again proves his deity by informing the disciples there is one in their midst that will betray him. And again, Jesus is not thrown off. He's not surprised that this happened. He knows this will happen. He knew what Judas would do even before he called him to be one of the 12. We also know that Jesus knew his intentions because in verse 27, he says, he says to him, what, are you go what you are going to do, do quickly. Jesus was never fooled by Judas. Earlier in John's gospel, he says as much in John 6, 70 and 71, he says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And in all that, folks realize nothing catches God by surprise. We may be surprised, and maybe frequently, but nothing catches God by surprise. And that, and that should bring comfort to your heart. He knows everything. Even though he knows what's going to happen, though, for Jesus, it doesn't stop from him being affected by the betrayal that would happen. John writes for us in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And this shows us the humanity of Jesus. Even though he, he knew it would happen, he was bothered by it. This is the third time that we've seen this terminology in the Gospel of John. And all three times, it's brought about by the death. The situation of death. We saw it at the tomb of Lazarus as Jesus witnessing the devastation of death by the sisters and those who were looking on. And just as then, Jesus is now troubled in his spirit. The pain and sorrow that he's experiencing as he will see one of his 12 leave and follow and make good on the plans that he had already been making with the chief priests. 
death. I'm sure in addition to this, Jesus knows that his hour has come. He informed us earlier in this chapter. Jesus knows what lies ahead of him in the next hours. The stress, the agony of his soul as the sin of you and me is heaped upon his soul. He knows of the separation that will have to happen. But he was also troubled by seeing the destruction that has going to happen to one of his creation. God never delights in the wreckage of one of his humans. And he sees Judas. He sees that Judas is choosing himself. And he's going to betray him. He's going to betray the others. And he's grieved. What does it mean to betray? The Greek word here means to hand over, to turn over with evil intent. To betray is to sin. Sin is betraying the Lord. And this passage teaches us this morning that sin is betrayal. There's so many other ways that the Bible talks about sin, and we get so many images and descriptions, and I believe this is one of them. What does the word betray mean? The word literally means to deliver, to get, to get something off your hands. Some of your translations might, might use the word deliver and in place of betray. It really means to, to get something away from you, to get rid of the obligation. You remember Joseph, right, in the Old Testament in Genesis? From, the, from that story, you know, he's, he's the brat of the brother who's having all these dreams. And what does he do? He wants to go tell his older brothers how great he is. God was working there, but what is their brother's response? Yeah, we see it, Joseph. You are great. No. What do they want to do? They betray him. They trap him and sell him into slavery. They got rid of him because they didn't want to listen to his stories anymore. We're not, we're not sure what Judas's motives are here. But I would guess, a few guesses, he's tired of Jesus promising a kingdom and not seeing it. I'm sure he felt that the, the power that Jesus was showing would, would not only benefit himself, and so he, he wanted that, but now Jesus becoming dangerous to him. And maybe he thought the Jewish independent movement is going to be sunk by this man's ridiculous claims of not just being a great leader, but the king of the universe, and he's the judge of the earth. Or, or maybe, just maybe, Judas was offended by Jesus' personal claim of lordship over his life. Maybe this is the issue. He had heard him say way too many times that he was not only his teacher, but Lord. And Judas wrestling with that is saying, it. it's one thing to say you're my teacher. It's one thing to say you're going to guide us. It's a whole other thing to say you're my king, my lord. And nobody has the right to do that. So what does he do? He, he betrays him. What does betray mean? It means to put Jesus in a condition where Judas no longer had to deal with Jesus' power and authority and control of his life. You know, the Bible instructs us that the essence of sin is the violation of the law. We see that throughout their murder, rape, stealing, right? Those are, those are sins that we see and recognize. But the, but the essence of sin is yet still more. It's, it's more subtle. 
It's more deep and profound. The essence of sin is to say to God, I don't need you. I don't want your grubby little hands on my life. This is my life. And I want to remove the power you have over me. You can still be around. You can still be that teacher. But you're not my Lord. I've got control. Sin is the simple determination to be independent of God. It is telling God that this is my life. When you say that to a person, it's rude. When you say it to God, it's sin. Jesus is not our consultant. He's not a teacher, a guide. He doesn't just come for a while and then leave. He doesn't just rent a room. He owns the house and you're indebted to him. Here's a story I read this week. A young couple in just outside New York City who moved into a house. They couldn't afford their own, so they found a house there they could rent a room. The house was owned by an elderly lady who had no heirs, no children. She owned this huge house, but she had neither the physical capacity nor the economic wherewithal to maintain this large home. And she took them in as tenants. And these people for many years have been telling her not the, the tenants, but her friends, kept saying to her, you need to move. You need to sell the house. You need to do something with that house. It's too big. It's dangerous for you, actually. But she wouldn't admit that she needed to do that. She would admit her weakness physically. She wouldn't admit her, her weakness economically. And so this young couple moved into the house, and they lived there for 12 years as tenants. And through that time, they had three kids, and they stayed in one little room during 12 years, and they're so faithful to her. They, they couldn't afford anything more. They took care of her. They watched after her as she was sick. They, they ran errands for her. They maintained the house. They repaired the house. They improved the house. There was no way she could have even stayed in the house, yet she continued to keep them in that strange little room. And one day, after many years of this happening, a distant cousin of the woman that owned it, came to town and sat down and saw the situation and saw her and really gave her a tongue lashing. Look, what are you doing? And after that, she came to this young couple with tears in her eyes and she said, you know what? I've been a fool. The only reason I've been able to live in this house is you. The only reason I, this house has any value now is because of you. Otherwise, it would have just, it would have deteriorated. The only reason I'm alive today is because of you. I have no rights over this house. I have no right to own it. I have no right to run it. I'm completely indebted to you, and yet I've continued to keep you the tenant, and I've continued to keep the prerogatives of the owner. And you've been so uncomplaining. You've been so patient. And your patience has just melted me. And I'm going to do now what I should have done a long time ago. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do justice today. I'm going to give you the deed of this house of ownership to you. You run this house. I want your family to fill it up. I want you to decorate it any way you want. I want the house to be filled with your lives and your joy and all that you need. And all you, all you need is this house. And all I ask is just one room. I want to be the tenant. I want to live in this room. 
The story says that there was a lot of hugging. There was a lot of weeping at that point and kissing. This older lady finally felt the burden of the house at last fall off her back when she admitted that it really wasn't her house after all. When she admitted she couldn't run the house. When she admitted that she couldn't be in the owner. When she acknowledged the fact that this couple had earned the house, that this couple was due the house. What does it mean for you today to acknowledge your debt to God? It means to come to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I asked you into my life some years ago and I tried to deal with you. And I see today, the only reason I'm alive today is because of you. The only reason I've been able to live is because of you. The only reason my life has any value is because of you. And yet I live and I continue to live a life in which I tell you what to do. I continue to to live a life that says, get your grubby hands off my life. And maybe a lot of you friends haven't said, God, you need to get out. But what you've said is, Lord, stay in those rooms. This is my house. You say, this is my life. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I just want you to stay over there. God, you can have the room. But the rest is mine. I know this is true in the lives of many because I remember it in my own life. And I ask, when will you come to him? Maybe with tears in your eyes and say, my life would be no value without you. I owe you everything. And I, and I deed my house, my life to you. I, I just want to stay as a tenant. When the, the burden then falls off because you finally realize, yeah, you're my Lord. It's what I need. I need you as my Lord. I need to show him and give him what is due. And I recognize that I've been betraying him. I've been pushing him out of my life. That is betrayal. Jesus is teaching this, not only through Judas and his sin, he's teaching us, he's teaching me. There aren't any closed rooms to our life where he doesn't have access. It's all his. And he's patiently waiting for us to realize that, to acknowledge that, to 
Give it up. You know, the disciples will learn this. We'll even see it today in this passage. They won't fully understand it, not right now. Jesus walks with them through the impending betrayal of Judas, and they're confused. It says in the passage, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And I find it intriguing that they didn't automatically look at Judas. You know, you think about that, especially if you study scripture and you know about Judas. I mean, you walk on the street and ask anyone in Seattle and you mention, you know, Judas and the story, they know of Judas. So maybe we assume that everyone knew. You know, they, they must have known what they didn't. Judas had them all fooled. He had them all fooled up to this point. And it might have been unsettling to the group that, that one, one's going to betray him. One of them had been there for three years was going to turn his back on Jesus. At the same time, I, I still wonder if it bothered them at all. You know, they'd already seen so many things of Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. They'd witnessed his power over nature and calming the sea and walking on water and turning water to wine and then healing people. And they're thinking, yeah, really? Now someone's going to betray you? I don't know. I don't, I don't know the response. Regardless, they wanted to know. And in verse 23, it says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, that's the author of his gospel, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. All right, now picture with me the scene around dinner table, okay? You're across the table from someone you know, and you hear what's happening, and, and Peter motions. It's kind of like that thing that happens in a married couple where the, the one spouse gives the look. You guys know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? Or even like the head nod, like, you know, hand motions. That's how I picture Peter on the other side going, he wants to know what's going on. I, I need to know. And John, recognizing it from the other side, was like, oh, all right, got it. You know, I understand now what he's trying to communicate. He says in verse 25, so that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. There are many guesses as I studied this of whether this was loud or not. I don't, I don't believe it was a proclamation by Jesus, loudly booming voice to let him know. My guess is to reading it through many translations and some commentaries and reading other gospel accounts, it was probably spoken in a, in a low tone, but everyone heard. In Matthew's gospel, we have more details. In chapter 26, it says, And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to, one, to him after one another, Is it, is it I, Lord? You know, the question from them is a good, a right approach, right? I mean, as a, as a believer, they're saying, Is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? And as believers, that's what we should do. That should be the practice. If it isn't me, God, is there any sin in me? Psalm 139, no, look at my heart. Is there anything here? But we're still frail. We're still human, and so are these disciples. And we see in Luke's gospel that they moved quickly to another question. And they began to grill each other. 
Luke's gospel, it says, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. You can imagine now just the possible chaotic nature of this meal. Is it me? No, it's you. I don't know. They want to find out. They want the answer. And coming back to John in verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Jesus again shows us his mastery over the situation. He's not a pawn in this story. He's, he's in control. And what you see here is the love of God. I want you to notice this. This is the love of God. Even though Jesus knows what will happen, even though he knows what Judas is about to do, he still serves him. This is significant. Of anyone in history, in the magnitude of the betrayal that's about to happen by Judas and what he does here, you would think that Jesus then has the right to respond in a way to what's happening, to how he's going to get mistreated to Judas. And what does he do? You know, in this culture, he serves him and places him at a high honor, actually. He serves him. There's some question of why. I, I believe this was the last opportunity. Well, I take that back. One of the last opportunities. Calling again for Judas to respond, and he doesn't. John says that Satan entered into him. Meaning at this point, going forward, he was to have control over Judas's life. In other words, Satan didn't just give up, give him the thought as he did earlier in the gospel. He himself entered into the man. It says that Judas was possessed by Satan. I want to back up here a little bit as, as to why. Last week we looked at the first 17 verses of this chapter. And in verse 2, John writes, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. He had already planted seeds. So what's the relationship between the will of Judas and the prompting of Satan? Well, I can say for sure that Satan did not move in the heart of an innocent man. He did not move in the heart of an innocent man. It's not a man who would otherwise done the right thing. We read earlier in John 12 that Judas was a thief, right? He had that, kept that hidden from the other 11, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew from the beginning that he was a wicked man whose heart had already been filled with unfaithfulness. Judas was not an innocent man. He loved money. And that may seem hard to believe, a man so close to Jesus, a man who sat next to him in teaching, a man who was trained in ministry, who heard so much, who witnessed the miracles. A man who was part of the 12 that as Jesus multiplied the food, he took baskets out to the thousands. He saw what was there and then carried out the multitude of food. You'd think 
that it would impact him. He went out to preach with them too. He went out to cast demons out of people too. You think he would get it. Think of all the well-known pastors in our world today who make millions and millions of dollars a year, who have multi-million dollar homes, who have Lexuses, and drop $30,000 at clothing stores. They're there. They love money. Judas loved money. But more than that, he loved control. He loved power. This is what drove him. It's not enough to go along for the ride. He needed to be the one in control. That's why he wanted to be in control of the money back. Judas was not an innocent man. Listen again to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It should be familiar verses to you. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead in our sins, walking in the passions of our flesh and the desires of our body and mind and children of wrath. This is, this is not just a description of Judas. This is a description of you and me. This is us. Satan doesn't take innocent people captive. There are no innocent people. Even in far off jungles, there are no innocent people. And Satan has power where sinful passions hold sway. And Judas shows us much about how the devil works in anyone's life who's not in Christ. J.C. Ryle writes, first he suggests, then he commands. First he knocks at the door and asks permission to come. Then once admitted, he takes complete possession and rules the whole inward man like a tyrant. And that may seem bleak, but we have the answer. We have the remedy in scripture. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have the answer. Judas did not do that. Judas was not a believer. He was ruled by money. He wanted power. And when confronted with the option to sell his Lord for 30 pieces of silver, he jumped. And you saw what Judas worshipped. Who, what do you worship? Some like Judas, you ultimately worship money. And through that, you want to have control. Some worship information, having all the answers or getting all the answers. Some worship peace. So you run from any and all conflict. You, you don't want answers. Some worship ease. So when things get difficult, you want to quit or change directions or make excuses. Some worship being correct. So instead of humbly admitting you're wrong, you live in your pride. What do you worship? We all have to ask this question. I have to answer this question. I'm not exempt. And what we worship will be evidence in our life and how we live our life and the priorities of our life. So the scene transitions now and in 
That verse Jesus says to him, verse 27, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table, it says in verse 28, knew why he had said this. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. These are the last words spoken from Jesus to Judas. The last opportunity that he had is now gone. And he ends this passage by saying it was night. This is significant. I didn't think so when I first read it. In fact, I said this in the first service this last week in our care group. We, we read through the passage and asked questions. And my wife actually said, what does that mean? Or what is he implying there? And I, I, I quickly said, well, I just believe John's just relating elements of the story so that we know what's coming next. And I dismissed it. Sorry, Katie. I said, this is just a storytelling device. And then I, I'm right, it is, but I'm not fully right. Because there's some significance, I believe, to this. John is relating what's going to happen next. He is giving us these clues as we walk through the story of what the next scene is. But it was night. Those words mean something here. Darkness. If you remember the Gospel of John, there's a lot of talk about light and darkness. It was night. It's probably the darkest night in all human history. Darkness. Some of you may be in some sort of darkness right now and, and you feel as though there's no light, no hope, no way out. For Judas, this was worse. He was entering, he was leaving this place. He was leaving the presence of his Lord to enter an eternal darkness. And although he didn't fully understand at that moment, he was walking away from the only hope he ever had in this life on earth. And he was walking headlong into an eternal darkness of separation from his Lord. He had agreed to sell his Lord, but in all actuality, he was selling himself. And he leaves this place, and it was night. So we've seen the choice of Jesus and the betrayal of Jesus. Last is the love of Jesus. And for all my non-Christian friends that are here this morning, you're about to step inside a family conversation that you're not a part of yet. It may seem harsh. I've been praying for you. I, mean, I don't know you specifically, but I've been praying that you would know and understand what it means to be a Christian. And I pray that as we end this morning with these remaining verses, that you will really see what the Christian life looks like. But realize this isn't for you yet. This isn't true in your life yet. This is for his children. I pray that you will understand these truths. I pray that you will trust in Christ. But Jesus moves into family business. Judas is now gone. He's left the scene, and he won't enter again until he 
comes to betray Jesus with the soldiers. And now Jesus begins a family conversation and we get a peek inside. And for you Christian here this morning, these final eight verses set the stage of what the Christian life should be. In verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And now that the traitor is out, the community is now clean and the plan of God is now in motion. The first domino has been pushed and things are moving more and more closer to the cross. And Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in Jesus' temporal obedience, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, his final exaltation. And the cross may look weak, but it's actually the point in which God undoes all of mankind's sin and reverses the consequences of the fall. And God will get the glory. And Jesus continues in verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while longer I am with you. You will see me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus shows his love for his children with the term little children, an intimate term. The intimacy of a, of a father with his kids. And what we have here is the instructions of a dying father to his kids. And this is the same teaching as he said that Jesus had for the Jewish leaders and said, this time it isn't a warning to believe, but an encouragement to keep on believing. Keep on believing. Even though he's gone, keep on believing. And he gives the, the instruction, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In this teaching, Jesus starts the formal farewell discourse that will go from this point all the way through chapter 16. And he's teaching the reality that Jesus will be separated from them. These men who had been with him intensely for the last three years, all through their discipleship, these men had relied on Jesus and his loving ministry to them. But now Jesus informs them that, that this love, that he will be taken away. And, and not only Jesus' love for them, he was leaving the world. And as he's departing, he's giving them a new commandment. The first question that came to my mind as I read this, was this really a new commandment? This is hardly the first time that the Bible commands God's people to love. We can read in Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's, there's time and again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament for us to love. And J.C. Ryle, though, points out for us, I like J.C. Ryle, Pam does too, J.C. Ryle says, it is called a new commandment, not because it had never been given before, but because it, it was to be more honored, to occupy a higher position, to be backed up by a higher example than it ever had been before. And the commandment is that we are to love one another just as Jesus had loved us. This commandment, the love that Jesus commands us to fulfill, to have towards one another is, is no ordinary love. No, we're Christians. This is the type of love of a, a newborn man or woman to a newborn man or woman. 
And we love this way. This love rises out of a brand new union that we have with Jesus Christ, with God. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you belong to a very special family. And this family does not include the entire world. It's a family that's inside of a much larger family, yet separate. As Christians, we're part of a family. We're we're no longer Englishmen and American or Russian or Canadian. We're Christians. We're one family. We're no longer of that church or this church or I'm from that state or this state. We're brothers and sisters. We're family. Furthermore, we who are believing and trusting in Jesus are going to live together in heaven forever. So we need to set aside the issues here on earth and learn to love each other now. We'll have the rest of eternity together. One day we will see each other in one common glory and be occupied with one common goal for all of eternity. And that's the adoration and praise of our God, our master, our king. We will no longer be occupied with just ourselves. We'll be captivated with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, he instructs us. Why else should we do this love? Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, this is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, and yet it's profound enough to make the most mature believer repeatedly embarrassed of how poorly they comprehend it and how poorly they put it into action. This is what grows a church, folks. This is what keeps a church. Love. And not only that, this is what identifies us to the onlooking world that we're the church, that we're different than them. Do you want to know really why people leave the church? It's because we as the church have really stunk at loving. Do you want to know why young people leave the church in droves after high school? It's not because of evolution. That's because of false doctrine. They may have a part in it. It's because they don't see their parents. They don't see their older people they've known for years to have humility and the ability to admit when they're wrong and to love one another. They don't see us acting in love. And here's the kicker. Satan is hoping for us to fail. Satan does not want you to love one another because he hates you. He hates you. He wants you to fail at this. 
And it may seem foolish when we think about this, to think of the church, to think of the family of God not loving each other. But it's true, it happens. It happens all the time. We've, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we've all been guilty of it. And it seems even ironic that it would happen. I mean, we're family. Why would we choose not to love one another? You know, Spurgeon, preaching just on this verse, has a great analogy in his sermon I want to share with you. He said, suppose that my little finger has been properly washed and cleansed, but that the rest of my hand is not so clean, and that therefore my, my finger holds it to be its duty to shut off the rest of my hand from communion with itself. It cannot do it. It's impossible unless it's severed from the hand. It must commune with the rest of the body, whether it's washed or unwashed. And you may deny your friend the outward form of fellowship because he's wrong, but you cannot deny him the inner fellowship, which is much more important. You're allied to God, and therefore you must have fellowship with others who are allied to God, whether you like it or not. Thank you, Spurgeon. Whether we like it or not. I want you to look around. Seriously, you don't have to look at me. Like, look around. Because this is the church. This is the family. And Jesus is addressing all of us this morning. And he addresses us as little children. And you know what I think of when I read that? I think of me as a parent dropping off my kids at Awana or Sunday school or other activities. And I don't know about you as a parent, but do you know how I handle that? It's usually getting low and it says, now here, this is how it's going to go. I'm going to leave, and this is what I'm expecting of you. Does anyone admit that? Am I the only one? We instruct our children, right? I'm not going to be here, or even... Let's say you're going to have a date night and your kids are struggling. They don't want to go. You're going to say, this is how it's going to go. This is what I expect of you. I'm coming back. But this is how you should act. And in these verses, this is Jesus. Leaning low to us. We're the kids. And he says to us, he looks us in the eye and says, this is how it's going to go down. This is what you're going to do. You're going to love your brother. You're going to love your brother and put his needs above your own. You're going to love your sister. You're going to serve her. I know that she's mistreated you, but you're going to serve her. You're going to love her anyways. And even though it's hard and you don't, I know you don't want to, you're going to do this. And the power in which you're going to do this is to think of me and to follow my example. Jesus says, I am your example. Just remember how I've served you. Just remember how I've loved you. I'm going to love you. Right? Last week, I'm going to love you to the end. And I was reminded again by Dave Allen last week. You know, at the end, I didn't even bring this out last week, but that phrase is, it is finished. I'm going to love you to when it's finished, Jesus says. To when I'm on the cross and I cry out. That's his response. That's how his love, that's to the, that degree. And he says, we love that way. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, 
If you do not do this, if you do not love this way, the world will swallow you up whole. It will eat you whole. It will dominate your thoughts and your actions and your will, and you'll resemble the world more than you resemble God. And so the charge for us this morning is to love. Well, how did the disciples respond to this teaching? You don't have to wait long because Peter will give us some insight. Right? He always does. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to them, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, excuse me, will, will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter resembles so many of us, so worried in how things will turn out and not very interested in living a quiet, upright, holy life, ordinary day after ordinary day in obedience to our God. You know, Peter's most definitely wanting to show his dedication to his Lord, but he misses the point. And do you see the irony in Peter's statement, I will lay down my life for you? He, he can't do it. He can't do it now. But he will do it later. And Jesus shocks Peter by prophesying that he will, he will actually do something much different for Jesus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. People wonder when they read this, how is this possible that Peter, Peter will get to this point. How, how will he get to the point of denying Jesus? <laughs> Do any of you remember what happened here in Seattle on March 26, 2000? Oh, Kevin, you're right. Special day for Seattle, right? Everyone loved the kingdom so much. That was the last day it was standing. On that day, the kingdom was brought low, done. Kind of like yesterday in the football game, right? Too soon still, right? Sorry, Mike. I wasn't here. We weren't in Washington. But not too long ago, we were talking about, I think Ryan Wood and I were talking about the kingdom and different things. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll go look at the video. I'm curious. And sure enough, YouTube has it. Not a very long video. And so I pull it up. And at that point, I'm watching it at home. Avery walks by, my five-year-old, and I was like, oh, wait. And I paused it, and I rewound it and said, hey, Avery, come watch this. I thought it'd be kind of fascinating for her to watch what happens. So it's like a 37, you know, 40-second video of just the final implosion, and it happens. And I was like, isn't that neat? You know, and she looks at me and was like, what happened? How did that happen? And then the question was like, will that happen to our house? I thought, oh, yeah, you're five. So I tried to relate to a five-year-old that for, for many days and weeks and months, actually, leading up to this point, that a demolition experts had been called in, people that know this stuff really well, and they had been evaluating this building. And, and then I'm trying to explain this to a five-year-old, explosives. And she's like, huh? You know, blows up. Oh, fun. Can I do that? And, and I say that all through the stadium, they set in different charges for it. So that when this day comes, when this moment comes, after all this planning, it will come down. 
But for a five-year-old who walks in a situation, looks at it, it looks, it just for her is all of a sudden, right? She looks at the situation as one building, looks strong, and all of a sudden it's gone. She doesn't understand the, the steps, the process of all the decisions, all the things that have happened. And this is the same for the fall of Peter. Frankly, this is the same for the fall of anyone who walks away. How did this happen to Peter? Well, quickly, he was overconfident. We see this time and again with Peter, right? Throughout the Gospels. Peter's mentality in ministry is, I got this, Jesus. Let me go. I've got control of this. He thought he knew it all. He thought he had arrived. And there was very little humility in the life of Peter. And actually, as we see, as the story continues past this point, there's a failure to pray for Peter, a failure to ask God for help. He, he had it all. So why ask for help? And he, and he failed in this way. And as you fast forward in the gospel accounts, we come to where Jesus is praying in the garden and, and Peter is there and, he, and, and Jesus is instructing them. In fact, he's warning them. And he says in Luke's gospel, 2240, he says, and when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Like being tempted to deny Jesus. But what happens? Do the men pray? They sleep. Little decisions. How else did this happen? We read in the account after this, in Luke's account, that in verse 54 of Luke 22, he says, then they seized him, they seized Jesus, and they led him away and bring him to the high priest's house. And Peter, Peter was following at a distance. Significant. In fear, Peter floats to the back. Folks, this is a warning to us today. This world is growing in its hostility towards Christianity. And we will be tempted to float to the back. We'll be tempted to ultimately deny Jesus. So how does Peter fall? Small decisions, one by one, leading to a denial, leading to the denial of the one that he says, I'll die for. How quickly this fall comes. I want to give you hope because in John 21, we see the restoration of Peter. Peter leaves from that chapter and does incredible things for God and dedication to him. So I want to end here this morning and ask just a couple questions. How are you at loving one another? Only you can answer that. Spend time with God. Do you desire to serve one another, to love one another? You know, I ask this greater question as a church and to think through it. Are we known as people here that think of others as more important than themselves. That people see our lives and they say, oh, I see the love for one another. Do they see that? You know, I want to, what I want you to do, what I encourage you to do, this is not a homework task, this is an encouragement to go back in this passage in verse 34 and 35 of John 13 and, and meditate on these verses. 
It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. Think through that. Meditate on it. Make it your aim this week to look for ways to love one another, to serve one another. My prayer is a church that will be known for this, identified as this, and as you as individuals, people will see this in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity we have to come and to worship together as the body of Christ. And I thank you for your word that teaches us and convicts us. And I recognize week in and week out daily as I read your word, there's areas for me to grow, areas for me to become more like Jesus. And I pray that my own life and the life of those that are seated here, that we will look for that, that we will not be sunk thinking that we're, no, there's no hope or, or no point, but that they will realize that you're there, that you care for them, that you desire to bring growth and obedience in their life. I pray for those that are seated here this morning that, that are not trusting in you, They're trusting themselves. I pray for those that have been here for, for months and weeks and years even, part of the church, and yet they own the house and you're just a tenant. And they've not relinquished control. They've not admitted that they need you in every aspect, every part of their life. They haven't humbled themselves and repented of their sin of control and power and acknowledged you as Lord. I pray that today is the day of salvation. God, help us. Encourage us, strengthen us as we leave this place to, to glorify you in our lives. God, may you be glorified in our church. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.